This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, on the road with Kevin Frankish and the CAA, charitable giving takes a hit and the 360 Kids Overnight Experience, but we begin with the move to drop proof of vaccinations. The Ontario government is scrapping its proof of vaccination program on March the 1st, just days from now. Questions, why, why now? What will this mean to vaccination rates, COVID case counts, and will this affect the comfort level of employees, patrons, and really anyone in a congregate setting not knowing whether the person next to you is vaccinated? U of T bioethicist Dr. Kerry Bowman joins us now on the feed with his take on this latest government move. Welcome, Kerry, always. And I just want to point out that you and I are recording this interview I'm recording from my home because I have just tested positive for COVID-19. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that, Anne. Well, I like so many people, and really that is, you know, I'm sharing this news because it seems so many people are coming down with COVID-19 with this highly transmissible Omicron, but also some are feeling that the lifting of restrictions are putting the health of some in jeopardy. So let's talk about the implementation of the vaccine passports a while ago, and now the scrapping of the program. From an ethical point of view, Dr. Kerry Bowman, what do you think? Well, you know what I think is that ethics really has to be proportionate. So we, we have to look at the nature and the severity of the threat and, you know, what it is we're proposing, what it is we're taking away or implementing, and do those things balance. And, you know, and the tough, tough stuff right now is that The science is not crystal clear at this point. Omicron is here. Look, as you well know, um, it is absolutely here. They tell us the numbers are going down, but they're not gone. And you know that, too. Um, So, you know, we we don't. And, you know, remembering that Omicron doesn't seem to have the same severity um, as, as the others have been. So we don't really have a very clear, crystal clear scientific picture. Look, we never have had a perfect picture throughout the pandemic, but it's been better than this. Then, and on top of this, you know, we're really not testing, right? So we don't really know what the data is suggesting. So these are some of the challenges. What do you think was behind the decision on the government's part to scrap the program? Well, you know, I'd love to say, now this is my opinion, and I'd love to say it, it's nothing but hardcore science. Uh, and part of it is that. But look, there is a trend throughout the Western world uh, to start walking away from these kinds of things, uh, these, these kinds of measures. And, and you know, a, a readaptation to sort of saying we're going to have to, you know, take precautions and try and protect ourselves more individually than collectively. And look, I, I, I know this is really controversial stuff, but I'm going to say this. I actually do think that the truckers protest, and look, I know they're extreme. I don't support the extremity that they've gone to in any way, shape, or form, but I do think it has, an, a very, has had a very sobering effect and made us kind of rethink this a little more rapidly. In other words, are you saying that the decision by the Ford government to add something to do with or if they felt pressure from the truckers' convoy, that part of the decision was because of that? I'm not going to say pressure, but I would say in, in the combination with the fact that a lot of very, very wealthy countries all over the world with elaborate healthcare systems like Denmark and the United Kingdom, et cetera, are walking away, 
in combination with the fact that the social pressure in Canada is very high, uh, I think these factors really did have an effect. That's my opinion. I'm not saying it's the only effect. That in combination with the fact that, that, that Omicron seems to be in decline. But look, we all know, as you know, people that have it right now decline or not, you know, um, and, and we're not even at March yet. So when March 1st comes around, what will be the short and long-term effect of, of the lifting of and the elimination of vaccine passports, do you think? So I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist, but I would also say I'm not sure the epidemiologists really know at all. We might have a small surge. We might have a, a more significant surge. We don't know. And, you know, the worse than that is I don't know how we're going to know. So, yes, we've got the wastewater metric. It's less than perfect from, from what I understand about it. But we don't have really, really solid definitive numbers. So, so we don't know. And a lot of the effect is going to be psychological, at least. I'm not saying that, you know, there's not going to be infection. But, you know, the question comes down to how do we feel about that individually as we go out into the world to wherever we go, movie theaters or out for lunch or dinner or whatever we're going to do. And, you know, we will see. We will see. But, boy, there's a very strong social movement as we hit year three uh, to start to walk away from this stuff. So will you see, do you think, a decrease in vaccinations where at this point, if the passport system is lifted, people might just say, well, why should I bother being vaccinated if I don't have to prove that I've been vaccinated? Well, you know, I do think that. I do think that. And that's already begun because we've got only about 44% of, of, you know, I think that's national data, meaning Canada-wide data of, of third dose. So the message that most people are picking up on is, is Omicron has flared. It's beginning to subside. It's not as serious as the others. And I think as people put these pieces together, they're saying, well, you know, maybe I don't really need this, this final vaccination. Um, but look, you know, here's the thing with vaccine passports. We really, really have to know that it's proportionate, that, you know, because we, we talk about the economic effects and I get it and I appreciate them fully or as much as I can. You know, I, I'm not going to say I fully understand them. But also, you know, vaccine passports are an infringement on freedom of movement. And in a democratic society, if you're going to limit people's freedom of movement, you better have a very good reason to do it. And that reason isn't as rock solid as it used to be. And here's the thing as well. The million-dollar question is how will this affect the future? So if, God forbid, there's another variant and it's worse and it's got higher lethality or morbidity mortality, all those things. Um, you know, will, the, will, will people be willing to start again with vaccine passports um, if, if, if we, you know, uh, cancel them now? I actually think they will. So some people say keep them in in case we need them for the future. But keeping them in where we're not, when we're not sure if we need them, I personally don't think is a good strategy. Terry, what do you think the message is right now being sent to the anti-vaxxers and people who just refuse to take COVID-19 seriously? The lifting, the elimination, the bye-bye of the, of the vaccine passports. What goes through their heads, do you think? Well, what goes through their heads and what the intended message is are probably two different things. So they're going to, you know, we can't control how they're going to interpret it. But, you know, the way they may interpret it is, you know, you've reached the point where you're giving up and we could have told you this a long time ago. Um, they would be wrong on that because, you know, we're, we're really, Omicron has changed everything. 
Um, this has changed everything, and that's one of the main reasons why we're moving forward. And millions of Canadians, all indications are, have been infected with Omicron. But look, what they're going to take from this is, is the whole thing didn't make a lot of sense to begin with, and now we're sure of it. But that doesn't mean we're still making the wrong decisions at this point. I actually do think we have to lift vaccine passports because I think if we keep them in, in case we need them in the future, I, I think we have a greater chance of people not taking them seriously. What about the timing? March the 1st, it is just around the corner, and for some it seems a little bit too fast, too quick, too soon. Yeah, it does seem quite fast. Um, you know, and it, March is not spring. I wish it was, but, you know, but it's got <laughs> that sort of psychology of spring, doesn't it? You know, we all say, hallelujah, March 1st, but we all know March is usually pretty awful. But, but you know, so, it, it, you know, part of it might be the, the, the kind of timing of spring. I really think that the governments of Ontario and Canada want to give increasingly uh, the people of this province and country the message that we are moving forward. I, I actually do think there is concern about social unrest um, beyond just the truckers, um, uh, the convoy protests. I, I do think there is concern about about social unrest. I, I think Dr. Moore's got it right, in my opinion, on this, Dr. Karen Moore. Um, I, I think he's making some good decisions. They're tough, but I, I think it's the best we can do. And look, and as we know, we if we have to, we can reverse things. If, if the data shows we've got a big problem, we'll, we'll, we've done it before, we'll do it again. You know, it's interesting you said uh, that the message should be, or the government's trying to get the message out that we're moving forward, but some see it as at the expense of people's health. Well, they very well may, and they're not wrong with that, because, you know, this is a very ideological position now. So what, what people are saying is if you feel you have vulnerability, if you, you've got an elderly person living with you, or you yourself are immunocompromised, then you have to make your own decisions. And when you look at that ideologically, you know, these are actually, you know, I'm speaking now as an ethicist, these are very, very deep decisions. And, and it kind of says you're responsible for yourself as opposed to, you know, we're all responsible for the safety and well-being of others. It, it, it's quite a shift here. Um, and, you know, um, th there's going to be a lot of people that, that think it's warranted. But the shift is coming as the profile of the pandemic has changed. The other thing is, you know, what the question that, that haunts us all is how long can we go on if, if we keep the passports in place, we keep the mandates in place, you know, as we enter year three, I mean, what is our endpoint if the variants keep coming? And I think that, that a lot of people making these decisions are mindful of that. Terry, can we touch briefly on masking? Some people see that as an infringement on their rights, and it seems as for the foreseeable future that the government is going to keep masking in place. Lots of countries have decided that they're on the path toward dropping that. What are your thoughts on masking and preventing the spread of COVID-19? Yeah. So, and again, you know, I'm speaking as an ethicist and not as an epidemiologist, but, but you know, the, I would argue that the, the information and the science related to masking is very, very strong because, you know, it, we could get into a conversation about what kind of masks, but let's leave that alone. Because, you know, we do know that this, this, this contagion is airborne. And, you know, masks are unpleasant but a lot of us have adapted to them. They don't infringe on people's freedom of movement. They don't tell you where you can go and under what conditions. I actually, so let me say it this way. I actually think masking is far more justifiable under these conditions than vaccine passports are at this time. So as we look ahead to March the 1st, what is 
the message that Ontario is going to take away from this dropping of the passports, the vaccine passports? Well, I mean, the message is we're moving forward. We're moving forward cautiously. Um, The threat is not gone. You know, um, there's lots of people, including the Queen of England now has COVID. I mean, you know, so this is really not gone. Um, We're moving forward very, very cautiously. And I think there's really quite a deep shift here because they're saying there's kind of a message that we're not going to be as responsible for everybody else's well-being, but each of us now have to decide about the safety and well-being of ourselves and potentially our family. So if we have someone in our family who's immunocompromised, does that mean I'm going to go out for lunch? Those are kind of the different decisions that we're coming to. And um, and we're going to watch the data, and we're going to have to wait and see what is around the corner, and let's hope it's all going to be better. And how do I, and I mean the universal I, how do I come to grips with not knowing the person sitting beside me in a cinema or in a restaurant not knowing whether they're vaccinated or not. How do I come to terms with that? Oh, uh, you notice my sigh. I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to figure these things out for myself. One thing I personally learned through this pandemic is I, I always knew there was variation in how each and every one of us perceived risk. But boy, I never realized how much variation there is. So we're, we're really in very, very different places. We do need to remember that the vaccines themselves are very helpful in terms of transmission, obviously in terms of severe illness, but they're not firewalls. You know, it's not as if, if you're vaccinated, you can't transmit and you can't get sick. It's not that, and it's never going to be that, it looks like, with, with COVID vaccines. So, so that is one of the considerations. But, you know, we're just going to have to start making our decisions. I, I wish we had more data to tell us how much is actually out there, because it's not that clear to me. You know, if, if the numbers of people with COVID just start really, really, really plummeting, um, I, you know, I guess wastewater is the best indicator we have for now. Um, you know, we'll probably feel more reassured. And I'm hoping when better weather comes and if there's no new variants, our, our confidence will begin to rise. But look, to answer your question more directly, there's going to be a lot of variation in how people react to this. Huge. Always so great to have you on the feed, and I appreciate your insights and your observations. Dr. Carrie Bowman, U of T bioethicist, thank you very much for being with us on the feed. Thank you very much, Anne. Next, the results of rising inflation on charities. Tina Cortez with the numbers. Jacob O'Connor is Vice President, Charity Engagement and Growth with Canada Helps. Now, Jacob, before we break down the poll about charitable giving, tell us about Canada Helps. Yeah, sure. And thanks for having me. So Canada Helps is a registered charitable technology foundation. Our mission is to increase giving in Canada through technology. So we operate a portal, CanadaHelps.org where you can search for and find any charity in Canada, make a donation to them or fundraise on behalf of them. And then we also build fundraising technology for charities so that they can succeed online as well. We've been around since uh, 2000. And in that time, we've processed over $2 billion in donations from over 3 million Canadians. And our listeners and followers, they can feel secure using the website and donating there? Yeah, 100%. So, uh, so we, we operate our secure site at CanadaHelps.org. And I think one thing to be clear about is that this is not a crowdfunding site. So it's, it's a little bit different. So we ourselves are a registered charitable foundation. And then we operate only with 
Canadian registered charities. So they have to be vetted by the Canada Revenue Agency, and they have a process where they need to continue to do that year after year. And so we're only working with registered charities. This is the donations are not going to personal bank accounts or different places. So you can be sure that your donation is going to the right place securely. Now, according to a new Ipsos poll, more Canadians may need the services of charities, all due to the pandemic and increased inflation. Jacob, what else did the findings reveal? Yeah, yeah. So, so I think firstly, um, to your point, so we're seeing now in January 2022 that inflation has reached the highest level since uh, since in, in about 30 years. Uh, so, it's at 5.1 percent. So just like it has an impact on an everyday Canadian, it, it has an impact on the charitable sector. So what, when we look at this, I think um, the impact on Canadians is that, and I, I think we saw this throughout the pandemic with, uh, you know, precarious work situations, um, people losing work for substantial amounts of time, that they needed to access charitable services just for basic needs. And um, I think we forget about this, but the charitable sector really is there as that social safety net. And we think about our homeless shelters and our food banks. Um, One thing that we heard from Food Banks Canada is that in in 2021, uh, food banks visit top 1.3 million visits in a single month uh, back in March of last year. So whenever the economy is is in a more precarious situation, when people aren't doing well, they, they turn to charity. And so we're seeing, we've seen that throughout the pandemic. Um, and with now inflation, it's going to be hurting wallets a little bit more. So what we saw in the poll is that 11% of respondents um, expected to continue to use ch- charity services to just meet their basic needs. Um, this is, again, due to the pandemic and inflation. Um, what, what we also saw is that demand for charitable service could increase to 26%. So this is with Canadians expecting to be to have to turn to charitable services more to meet those just those basic needs. And what about in terms of their financial situation? Do they believe it is going to be impacted negatively in some way? It's inevitable. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, in, inflation in, in simple terms is their dollar is worth less. Um, so in the poll, what we saw is that most Canadians, seventy four percent are concerned about inflation, and 82% of them expected their finances to be negatively impacted due to this rising inflation. Um, So I think that's definitely the case, that the majority of Canadians are expecting to be negatively impacted. And then kind of the result of that is that due to this, 15% of them are reporting that they won't be able to afford basic necessities, and a a further 29%, a lot of numbers here, are uh, are saying that that they they would need to cut back on some basic necessities if this high inflation continues. So if there's less for basic necessities, that will obviously result in being able to donate less then as well, right? One hundred percent, Tina. Um, so right off the bat, um, with this more precarious situation, twenty five percent of respondents plan to give less to charities in twenty twenty two due to the effects of the pandemic and inflation. So, and 17% reported that inflation was the primary reason that they would give less. And just to kind of center us here for a second, I think, so there's a couple of things that are important to note here. So number one, just like for the rest of the industries across Canada and the world, the pandemic was difficult for charities in Canada. 
I think right off the bat, as soon as the pandemic started, many charities, uh, their primary on their primary fundraising avenues are in-person events. You know, your local church, you need to be in the church pews to give to the basket. Um, your arts organizations need to buy tickets. Those were gone overnight. Um, so right away, a huge portion of, uh, of, of revenue streams for charities were gone. Um, and add that to the fact that we had more individuals needing access to those charities to, to meet those needs. So we had an increase in demand for service. Plus, we had a huge hit to revenues. Um, so charities have been in a really difficult situation. And then now with inflation coming on top of that, with those 25% planning to give less, the situation um, is going to be difficult for charities in light of this. So there are more who need the charitable organizations. How do you think the gaps then in giving will be filled? That's a, that, that, that's a good question. Um, so I think, so a, a couple of things. I'll, I'll start off by saying that, so in the first year of the pandemic, Canada Helps projected a 10% decrease in total giving for that year. So this is a huge amount. This is over a billion dollars lost in that first year of the pandemic. While there was a huge decrease in overall giving, and this was due to, again, those loss of revenue streams, in-person fundraising, there was a very large increase in online fundraising in 2020. So Canada Helps, we experienced a 116% increase in online donations in 2020 versus 2019. So that, that was huge. It did not make up for um, what was lost, but it was a bright spot. So in terms of like what's going to fill the gap, I think online giving has been a big spot, a big bright spot. In 2021, that growth slowed. So we actually saw a 2% decrease over the previous year. So that, that growth in online giving kind of tapered off. But we did see some positive trends. So one of them is the growth in, in, in monthly giving. So monthly giving grew significantly last year. Uh, and this is great for charities because it's kind of a predictable revenue stream. And the second is that we saw a huge increase, and this is maybe the biggest bright spot, in gifts of stocks and mutual funds. So we saw a 91% increase in 2021, over $32 million raised of gifts of stocks and mutual funds. And I think this is the most tax-advantaged way of giving. So I think throughout the pandemic, also with inflation coming, this is the way that Canadians could save most when, when giving and get the most tax advantage. So we saw a big increase in that. Um, and we hope that that could be something that can make up some of the shortfall. But I think Canadians will have to keep in mind inflation when making their gifts to charities this year. $100 last year is not going to be the same $100 this year. Jacob, thank you for those insights. For anyone who wants more information about this poll or Canada Helps, where can they find it? Yeah, I, I think the easiest place to go, Tina, would be to our website, and that's at www.canadahelps.org. Um, yeah, and thank you so much for having me. really appreciate it. Thanks for your time on the feed. After the break, the deadly consequences of speeding and stunt driving. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome 
Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. We turn our attention next to road safety. Over to Kevin Frankish and the CAA. When it comes to traffic safety, there is no more important topic than speed and speeding. Let's talk to uh, Teresa DeFelice right now. She is the Assistant Vice President, Government and Community Relations for CAA South Central Ontario. Hi, Teresa. Hi, Kevin. It's true, isn't it? You know, it's the one topic that supersedes everything else. If we could conquer this one problem of speeding, the rest would be a breeze. It's so true because what people don't realize is that the higher the speeds are, the more likely for, you know, a collision and that the collision will be more severe. So either, you know, severe injuries or even resulting in fatalities. Yeah. And and those injuries are something that do become much more severe with speed, almost exponentially, whether it's to someone within the vehicle or outside the vehicle as well. Yeah. I mean, people don't get that, you know, you need a lot more stopping or reaction time at higher volumes of speed. And, you know, and depending on where that's happening, whether it's on a highway or in a local residential neighborhood, uh, there's a lot, there's still some, someone or something around you uh, that could really complicate what that looks like if it ends up you know, in a situation that you weren't anticipating. Nobody anticipates having a collision uh, or a crash, but when they do, it's usually with something, someone, another vehicle, uh, you know, it could be a child in a local neighborhood, mm-hmm. an animal. And, and you know, the, really the potential, once you start getting into those really higher speeds is really tragic. Okay, we're going to close our eyes and we're going to envision the typical speeder if there is such a thing. So what I'm seeing is I'm seeing uh, a younger male. Um, it, 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 is that is that too stereotyping? I think there is a little bit of a stereotype, although that stereotype was born from something. And and that was probably from the stats that we used to see when it came to speeding tended to be uh, younger males. I think there's there's two things that are happening now. Uh, We're having a lot more women admit to speeding. In fact, in the survey we we conducted last year uh, of the of the people who responded to the survey who admitted to speeding, 45 percent were male and 40 percent were female. So, um, you know, I don't think it's it's typically just a male driver anymore. The younger demographic still holds true. We are seeing predominantly 35 and under are the ones at least. Um, showing up in police stats and and provincial stats on road safety. Yeah, I mean, totally anecdotally in all my years of driving, uh, I have noticed so much just in the last couple of years that I look over to see someone who's who's been aggressively driving and it's a female uh, and male equally now. So I I'm not surprised anymore when I when I see a female recklessly, you know, or or aggressively driving. I shouldn't say recklessly, but uh, but aggressively driving. So, yeah, it's becoming equal opportunity as 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 it were right now. And speed is pretty well the number one factor in collisions. It absolutely is. You know, the driving force in collisions and even in injury stats. Um, again, you know, we're seeing that those collisions tend to be far worse than other types of collisions. You know, speed does play a factor. In fact, uh, you're, you know, going 50 kilometers or over a speed limit is makes you 10 times more likely to get injured uh, or potentially die in a crash. That's that's really sobering to think about. It really is. You, you, you're 10 kilometers an hour over 20 
30, 40, and each increase in speed is exponentially wor- uh, you know, worsening your chances of getting into a crash and worsening the injuries and damage caused by that crash. Yeah, it's a sobering thought for sure. It most definitely is. Um, drivers who put themselves and other road, uh, road users at risk, and that's what they're doing by speeding. Uh, it's not being preachy. It is vital, you say, that drivers curb their impulse to speed or drive dangerously. Well, come on, mom, stop lecturing me. That's, that's you know, sometimes, I mean, you know, as a, as, a, as a younger driver, that's the way I'm going to feel, right? Sure. I mean, there's, there's two factors at play. Um, and again, there's, there's always lots of factors at play, but, you know, it, it doesn't sound very cool, you know, to, to sort of say, you know, mind your speed and slow down, but the, there's a couple of things to consider. So, you know, until you're about 20, between 25 and 30, the part of your brain that develops risk is not fully developed. Mm. And so, you know, there, that's one aspect from just a purely developmental, you know, scenario is that you just don't think you're going to get into that crash. Yeah. Um, and so that's a real problem because the ability to analyze or assess uh, the potential outcomes aren't there. You know, as we get older, we get a bit more cautious because we're a little bit better at you know, either seeing what could come of the situation or, you know, people and you've heard stories and it becomes a sobering second thought, right? And in terms of your own behaviors. The other thing is, you know, there's a lot of media around us that are, you know, fueling that desire, right? Where more people are playing video games. Uh, video games are about fast cars and going fast. Movies that come out, um, you know, there are certain series that that glorify sort of that, you know, car racing lifestyle, uh, that ability to maneuver your vehicle around all kinds of barriers, including the speed limit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a lot that's pumping people up to sort of say, oh, I've got the open road in front of me, or there's other factors like I'm going to be late. And so I'm going to try and catch up by going a little bit faster. Um, and, and all of these things uh, don't always play the same level of minds, mindfulness in terms of what our own individual reactions should be or how we should respond to them. Unfortunately, the consequences are severe. And then let's throw in there better vehicles, better roadways. Uh, when I was first driving in my early 20s, I had a vehicle that if it went over 80 kilometers an hour, I knew it. It told me, but it is not unusual to be driving down the highway and look down and say, Oh my gosh, I'm doing 140. I honestly didn't even realize that the vehicles are better. The roads are smoother. So it, it's just a bad combination. Yeah. Comfort and convenience, right? We want to be comfortable in the rides that we're in. Um, and, and part of that is, is sometimes you actually don't realize the speeds you're going um, and there's been a lot, especially when you talk about speeding in, in sort of non-highway scenarios, there's, there's been a lot of data that, that has resulted in changes to our roadways and speed limits. So, you know, people, people have gotten used to driving, you know, 50 or 60 kilometers on certain roadways are now saying, you know, seeing 40 or even 30 mm-hmm. kilometers. Um, but part of the reason why those, those changes have happened is a result of the collisions and the potential, potential scenarios that that arise out of those collisions. So the question now is what can we do about it? And I know the CAA is actively trying to educate drivers. 
Yes, we we launched a campaign uh, around think you know think you need to speed think twice. It is aimed at younger drivers, trying to get them to understand, um, you know that that although the road seems inviting or there's an empty mm-hmm. parking lot, um, you know this these types of behaviors are not the place to you know to to do stunt driving and doing donuts in intersections or parking lots. Um, you know, there are other people around you for your own safety and for others. Just, just have that broader mindset that this is not okay. And then, you know, we're also we were also supportive of changes um, to the penalties penalties that are have been brought into place that existed before, but just got strengthened and, and more severe uh, in order to help curb because you can put the campaigns out there and you can you know offer up advice. Um, that's always the carrot, right? And then comes the stick. If people aren't going to change their own behaviors, then the only thing left are tools like enforcement tools and mm-hmm. convictions and and penalties. And it's not like people don't know they're speeding, not aware of it. You've actually done uh, a poll on that. Yes. I mean, we did a poll last year. I mean, first of all, 81% of the respondents um, and it's a statistically representative sample of, of Ontario, but 81% have witnessed speeding. So, you know, a lot of us are seeing it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had 42% admitting to speeding themselves um, and including 7% admitting to, to racing or stunt driving. So, you know, you have people who are recognizing their own behaviors and, and being willing to admit um, that, they're, that they're sort of, you know, doing something they shouldn't be doing. Okay, so it's a very simple message. Slow down. Slow down. <laughs> and not even saying slow down, just at least just, just do the speed limit. Um, yeah. Teresa, let's talk about penalties. It used to be 50K and over, that was stunt driving, period. But that's changed. That has changed. Um, in any roadway where the posted speed limit is 80 kilometers or less, mm-hmm. if you are going 40 kilometers over whatever that posted speed limit is, so, if, you know, if you're in an 80 zone and you're going 120, you are now uh, subject to uh, this aggressive driving, speeding, stunt driving penalty, which includes license suspension for 30 days, a vehicle impoundment. Um, and and so, yeah, the, a lot of people haven't realized that come last fall, a lot of changes were made to the law. And so anything 80 and under, if you're going 40 over, you are now a stunt driver. And if you're in a, a zone that's 80 and above, um, like, a, you know, the highway where it's 100 kilometers, then it's 50 kilometers, uh, except for those, uh, those couple of sections of highways that we've now uh, still in a pilot zone where it's 110 kilometers per hour, it is still 150 kilometers. It is. To be charged okay. instant driving. Yeah, I, I've seen a couple of those. I know there's one on the QEW down, uh, heading down towards uh, Niagara Falls and past Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And that is one thing too, is that perhaps we do need higher speed limits in some areas. I know truckers in Northern Ontario have been crying for, for, for years to at least raise the speed limit to hundred kilometers an hour from its current 80 or 90, wherever they happen to be. So if we can show some responsibility in this, then we'll see more of those areas where we have higher speed limits. Exactly. But at the same time, we're still being cautious about what that threshold looks like. So, you know, in those higher speed areas, it's still if you're going 150 kilometers, which is only at that point, 40 kilometers over the speed limit, you are going to be charged with stunt driving and speeding. And and again, like, you know, again, new laws have been put in place. It's an immediate 30 day license suspension that that's up from a previous seven day suspension. 
uh, vehicle impoundments for, for two weeks. Um, and then also what's post-conviction, depending on how many times you've been charged this way, um, you're going to get even higher suspensions and, and, and vehicle impoundments, including a lifetime driving ban if you've been charged on your fourth conviction. So, you know, this is something that everyone's taking very seriously. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Thank you very much. And I appreciate the CAA for, for what they do in getting the messages out there, but at the same time, lobbying government for, for necessary changes, whether it be to enforcement or, or speed limits. The CAA is always out there doing that. So thank you, Teresa. Thank you. When we come back, the 360 Kids Overnight Experience. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Leadership is a hot topic of discussion these days, both federally and provincially. And whether or not you agree with the prime minister or the premier, it was fair and free elections that brought each of them to power. Let's now look at the municipal level. Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua joins us for his monthly chat here on 105.9 The Region to reflect on Vaughn's past achievements and to hopefully build a better future. Mayor Bevilacqua, always a pleasure to have you on the show. So let's Talk about all that you have accomplished as mayor since you were elected in 2010. Well, and it's always a pleasure to, to be here as well. I, as I look back, you know, and you kind of reflect upon the, the uh, achievements that uh, basically, you know, are really a tribute to, to the citizens of Vaughan. And you, you look at the opening of the Cortellucci Vaughan Hospital uh, in, in June 2021, uh, when you look at uh, the the bond becoming the first municipality outside of Toronto to be connected to the TTC subway, the arrival of Niagara University to the Valley Metropolitan Center, the evolution and rise of the Vaughan Metropolitan Center, the creation of the 900-acre North Maple Regional Park. And, you know, back in 2010, when I became mayor, there were 65,000 fewer jobs. And so, all in all, when you look at this, you're looking at basically building anchors uh, to the community and transforming a city. And I refer it to the city of Bonn as a city that has come of age, a city that has gone through a full transformation. It uh, it is you know it's no longer a you know a bedroom community. It's it's a community that uh, is developing a very urbane uh, feel to it, and uh, all these. Uh, Great achievements uh, have been part and parcel of, of uh, uh, the creation of a of a city that is uh, really coming of age. When you became mayor in 2010, what was Vaughn like at that point, and where do you think that the solid foundation of success came from? Well, I think we have exceptional citizens. Uh, just remember what I just said: no hospital, no subway, uh, no park, uh, no university, no, no 65,000 jobs, and no Vaughan Metropolitan Center. Now, it's obviously we have all that. You need to just imagine. Close your eyes for a second and imagine now the city without all that. And that's what the city of Vaughan looked like. And uh, we have obviously many more people uh, living in, uh, in uh, this city uh, as a result of being a welcoming city, a diverse city where we speak over 105 different languages, where there's a lot of economic opportunity. And and really, at the end of the day, you know, I often say that it's all about uh, letting people live happy, fulfilling lives. That 
our meaningful lives, lives where people manifest the very best of of themselves, and and creating an environment where they can in fact uh, achieve their full potential, and and that's what great citizenship is all about. And I have been very fortunate because as mayor, I've had uh, great citizens to represent as mayor, but also you know as you know, I've been. You know, I was a member of parliament, a cabinet minister prior to this, and, and so for over 34 years, I've had the good fortune of representing uh, great, great citizens who know about civic responsibility, who understand that, that they want to contribute as well to, to the well-being uh, of the city, and they've done that throughout my many years of public life. You know, I think all of us understand that no city is an island unto itself. So how important was it that Vaughan became the first municipality outside of Toronto to be connected to the TTC? Well, you know, it, it really uh, became an area where, first of all, there's the transit benefits, obviously, but it also there are also the, the community building uh, uh, benefits where you have now the, the Bond Metropolitan Center that is uh, anchored to the, the subway, where we are 267 percent of the projected growth. We you know we're going we're going to grow around 20 to 30 thousand. Now, approximately 60 to 70 thousand people will live and work and play uh, uh, in that area. Which uh, you know, as we project outwardly to 20, 25 years, uh, you will see that uh, that area will be uh, unrecognizable in a positive way. You know, I think people also understand that you, in particular, you're not just the leader of the city, you're involved in the city in many, many ways. You are currently the chair of dozens of committees in Vaughan, and there's that great line from the Gettysburg Address, government of the people, for the people, and by the people. I think that you live by that. Absolutely, and you always have to be, you know, be very mindful of the fact that, you know, leadership comes down to being a servant first. You can't be unless you serve first, and it's never really about you. It's about uh, what you're willing to do to improve the human condition. Ultimately, that's what public service is about. That's what public life is about. You get elected to improve the human condition, and you know, you can simplify to that essential core. And if you, as a leader, have clarity in your values, principles, and beliefs, and you align uh, your actions to your uh, values, principles, and beliefs, then you also develop a clarity of purpose. And that, to me, is fundamental. And the clarity of purpose is that, you know, you have to understand that, you know, every human being in my city wants something to do, someone or a cause to love, and something to hope for. Those are three principles that are common throughout and as a leader, you have to recognize that and help them fulfill those uh, three objectives. Interesting that you would say that, and also that you would spend as much time as you do chairing so many different committees and learning the ins and outs of how that city runs, what makes it tick, and you also promote the ticking of Vaughn. Well, you know, you, you, you know I, I'm pretty hands-on. I, I listen to people, but, uh, you know, I, I put in a lot of hours and long hours because I truly believe that uh, you know, you have to have uh, one major focus in your life. In my case, it's been uh, public service, and you have to be all in. But these are not, you can't, you can't take half measures. You have to uh, really understand that uh, there are over 330,000 people that depend on you leading the city. And that's a great responsibility, uh, but it's also a great opportunity, and that is an opportunity to serve. And, you know, it's... Um, and very much like you've done in broadcasting, the reality is once you find uh, your purpose in life and what you truly love, you really don't work a single day of your life because uh, you do that with a great deal of uh, 
insight. It fulfills your spirit, your mind, body, and spirit. It, it motivates you to achieve uh, greater heights. And while you achieve greater heights, you know, the city also uh, benefits from uh, uh, that commitment. And in, in my case, it's been uh, wonderful because I've been able to, to really do something that I love. And at the same time, what I love is really answering my call with public service. And so I've been I've been very fortunate. And so when we talk about the hospital, the subway, the, the Bond Metropolitan Center, the park, and the, the jobs have been created. And the very first university in York Region, namely Niagara University, and being part of all this, you know, I always view a public life as an act of creation. And so when uh, I drive around my city, I see uh, fingerprints, as so many other people would see their own fingerprints. And I always remind people that life is about helping and in creating. And, and so that makes you get up in the morning with uh, the drive to, to really do the very best you can. And do you listen to your constituents? And, you know, even if there's negativity, and I'm sure that no one walks this earth without, without being criticized at some point, how do you deal with that? And why do you listen to your citizens? I listen to my citizens because I think everybody has uh, the ability to be a teacher and everybody has lessons that I can learn from. It doesn't matter whether they express themselves in a very nice, gentle way or sometimes in an aggressive, opinionated way. Uh, they are both uh, both opinions of both individuals placed on earth to be your teachers. And you have to be uh, uh, you know, an attentive listener. You have to suspend your biases when you're talking to people. You know, A conversation where you predetermine everything is not a conversation. Uh, that's just you stating your opinion. And, uh, but I do think that if, uh, you know, you have the humility uh, of, of really knowing the fact that you're not all-knowing. I'm not all-knowing. I, I don't have all the answers to all the challenges, but I know one thing that I really believe, and that is that every question you have, you ask the universe, there's an answer. And, and that's a very, very powerful motivator because you know that the question that you're asking already has an answer somewhere. You just have to find it and look. And sometimes I find it in nature. Sometimes I find it with people. Uh, some I, I find it in, in various different uh, avenues because you've got to see wisdom in all things that are surround you. And, uh, and good and bad, because the bad reminds you uh, that it does exist and it can affect uh, uh, public policy. It can affect life on, on Earth. But the reality is that, you know, you've got, you've got to learn the point where you become wise to the ways of the world and uh, and you know politicians are not excluded to that we you know we we need to be very uh, good listeners and i've always found that to be to, to serve me well look i've been reelected 11 times right and i say this and i'm very modestly because i see it as a, as a as a real privilege that people give me but one of the reasons why i've been reelected so many times is because i've always listened to people and people felt that I was listening to them and people saw that I was always learning. Look, I went back to school at age 56 uh, to get two master's degree, one in law, one in theology. That should give you a sort of a sense that I know I don't know everything and I don't have you know, a monopoly on, on wisdom. You have to be humble enough to accept that in your life. So that's the only way that you stretch. And, um, and, that's, and that's what I do all the time. And I do it because I truly care about humanity, and I want I want humanity to succeed. And you know, around the world, you see that you know there's so many challenges that we face, but uh, ultimately, 
life is, uh, is, is improved through the higher frequencies of life, which is love, compassion, understanding, uh, not greed, not, uh, you know, uh, actions that speak to, uh, to what I think are lower frequencies. I don't think anything great has ever been achieved through lower frequencies. So in a nutshell, having been through all that you have as an MP and as mayor of the city of Bonn and this pandemic, what, in your view, exactly is leadership and what do you aspire to? Leadership is the ability to give of yourself in a way that improves the human condition. Uh, where you are there, you're, you're, you're offering yourself uh, in a way that co- collaborates, cooperates with other individuals, where, where you're able to make decisions. Now, the harder you, you work, the smarter you work, the, the more engaged you are. Engagement is key. Engagement is key. You've got to be engaged on, on issues that you care about and that people care about, and that's where you, you, you have breakthroughs. But I always tell people, you cannot break new ground until you establish common ground, a common language, a common understanding, uh, a, a way to, to move forward together. And those are the wins that build strong foundations. You're not going to go and build a great city if you're not in tune with uh, what the desires and aspirations of uh, the residents are. You need to really uh, tune in to, the, to their frequency. You know, you have to understand what exactly is it that they would like uh, they would like the city to be, and be you know in many ways a transformer and a transmitter of that energy uh, towards uh, towards positive ends. And you know, when people grade the city, give give very high grades on satisfaction, I take satisfaction from that because I think that I'm connecting with uh, with people, that I'm understanding what they want, I am understanding what their needs are. And, uh, and that's what a leader should do, and that's what a leader should be. Ultimately, you know, it's not really about the leader himself or herself. What, what is, it's about what that individual can achieve uh, in this, you know, uh, major motivator, which is improving the human condition. So I simplified it right to, uh, and I use the word simplify, not to say that this, these are not complex challenges one faces, but simplified and crystallized it and distill it to its essential core leadership, which ultimately is improving the human condition. And once you do that, then you can lead the way. The leader of the city of Bonn, Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua, thank you so much for joining us on The Feed. Thank you, Anne. It's a very pleasure. Well, the winter months are especially challenging for the homeless. Jim Lang with the details of the overnight fundraiser and volunteers trying to make a difference. Thursday, March 3rd, is something very special in the region. It's a ninth annual 360 experience in support of our good friends at 360 Kids and someone who's taking part and stepping out and doing something above and beyond the call of duty to help out 360 Kids is Ann Gomez. She's the founding president and author of Clear Concept Incorporated, and she joined us on the feed. Ann, how are you? I'm great, Jim. How are you? Thanks so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. We've been a part of this since day one of the radio station, uh, shining a spotlight in the 360 experience. And it's amazing to see the wide variety of people, young and old, in the region that take part. What drew you to this event and why are you taking part, Anne? Well, first of all, thank you so much for highlighting this event. It's such an important event. I, I'm a mother of four, and my husband and I work so hard to provide our kids with a safe place to sleep and all the the support in life they need. 
And to me, it is heartbreaking to think that there are so many youth out there without a safe place to sleep, without the core essentials that every youth deserves to start their life off on the right note. There are youth out there, these frigid, cold nights, there are youth out there without a place to sleep. That's why I am involved in 360 Kids. I know, like my wife and I, and we were like, wait a sec, there's this many people, teens in your yeah. region, who need help? Yeah. Were you not as surprised as we were? Shocking. It is shocking. 360 Kids serves 3,500 youth every year in the York region. 3,500 youth. Which is which is mind-boggling considering the money and wealth in this region. And you think, mm-hmm. you drive around like, how could this be? I know, I know. It is, um, yeah. It they're they're hidden in the shadows, and we need. To, and thank you for talking about three hundred and sixty kids and bringing me on your show and and sp- supporting this event over the years. Because one of the biggest things that this event does is raise awareness of the fact that we have so many disadvantaged youth out there. Speaking with Ann Gomez, she is one of the participants in the ninth annual 360 experience in support of the 360 kids taking place Thursday, March 3rd, until early Friday morning, uh, March the 4th. So here's the question for you. What's your strategy for doing this, for staying warm, for surviving the night? Well, you know, I want to bring my big winter coat and my hand warmers, my big, you know, big winter boots. But part of me thinks... Is that really the experience? Is because you and I both know that these disadvantaged youth don't have the best, uh, you know, in terms of warm clothing. Uh, yeah, I've heard some other participants. They sleep in bank vestibules. They speak. They sleep in parking garages. They sleep in all night laundromats. So I'm, uh, I am a bit anxious about this. You know, wondering where I'm going to sleep. Um, you know, but then I think this is one time. One time I have to go through mm-hmm. this, let alone every night. Get all the information at 360kids.ca, and you can donate to Ann and others at their website, 360kids.ca. So how is your fundraising going leading up to the event, Ann? So far, fundraising is going well. I think it, it all when you reach out to people and tell them about this, so many people are willing to open up their checkbooks. And so for any listeners out there who are willing to make a donation, every donation, any any amount makes a difference. So, so far, this is looking to be the biggest uh, 360 experience ever, which is amazing because, but what we know is the need continues to be great. There are still so many kids out there. The pandemic has hit disadvantaged people even harder. And so every donation helps. You know what's impressed me really a lot, Anne, is I I see active parents like you trying to make a difference, members of the uh, community whether it's the fire department, police department, politicians. I also see a lot of teens, teenagers in high school who are touched by this and also doing this to try to make a difference. That's That impresses me. I know. It's amazing. We have so many teenagers signed up to do this. They're doing the virtual experience where they will, with um, a friend or two, uh, perhaps uh, stay outside. from. And now, it's not the full night. It's 8 p.m. until 1 a.m. Mm-hmm. for the virtual experience. But still, that uh, is quite a bit, sitting on your front porch, your back porch, your garage, you're really going through the experience of what homeless youth youth experience. And and one of the benefits for the youth in not only learning what so many disadvantaged go through, but they can also get volunteer hours, up to five volunteer hours. Which is crucial for high schools if people don't realize that you have to have those volunteer hours to graduate high school in Ontario. Absolutely. My daughter's going to be doing this with a few of her friends, and uh, I think it's important for her to to get a better sense of what 
some people in our society go through. Now, are you doing the full Monty and are you going to be showing up or they give you the scenario and away you go? I am 8 p.m. until 6 a.m. And this event is intentionally held on a Thursday night so that participants have to go to work or go Mm. to school the next day and function. I have a busy day at work the next day. I'm leading, um, I'm leading some training sessions. I've got to be on. And so that is another factor to think about. How do you function when you haven't had a safe and full night of sleep? And maybe proper food and and everything that goes with it. Exactly. Your brain just is not in top gear, is it? Exactly. Exactly. Ann Gomez, uh, thank you so much for doing this. One of the great participants in the ninth Annual 360 Experience in support of 360 Kids. Late Thursday, March 3rd to early in the morning of Friday, March 4th. Get all the details. And please, you can donate to Ann and others at 360kids.ca. And thank you so much for doing this. And let's hope in the future we won't need to do it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you to you and all your listeners. A pleasure. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.